As we read this evening, what we want to remember that this is God's word to us, and so we can have real confidence in it. First Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who, can, who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Well, do let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're particularly thinking of verses 8 to 15. I don't know, uh, you see that these are uh, controversial verses. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen on social media that uh, uh, dog and cat owners set up these little obstacle courses for their animals. I don't know if you've seen that. You know, you, 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 you put the food for the cat or the dog in the kitchen, and, and uh, you, you set up this obstacle course in the corridor, and, and it's full of cups and, and plastic bottles and pieces of string and so on. And the cat comes running around the corner for its food, stops, and carefully negotiates its way through the obstacles. Nothing is knocked over. There's no fuss. It just, it just moves smoothly through the whole problem. The, 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 then there's a dog that comes around the corner. It's a Labrador, and, and it just, there's cups flying everywhere, and everything's a mess. I'm hoping to be a cat tonight, uh, but I, I'm, I'm feeling a bit of Labrador coming on, and, and, and I imagine that there'll be uh, maybe a little bit of upset uh, as we try to navigate our way through this. Um, there's, there's no doubt that, that one of the most controversial areas in our contemporary society is that of sex and gender. What, what does it mean to be male and female? One of the big questions of the day. Uh, are these things just constructs that society puts on people, or are they a function of our biology? Can someone change from male to female and vice versa? Some of the most hotly contested questions of the day lie in these areas of sex and gender. And we've become used as a society, and even as a church sometimes, to answering these questions not on the basis of tradition or science, but on the basis of feeling. That's, you know, increasingly the way our, our, our culture is going. What feels right? What feels fair? 
And of course, not just what feels right, but what feels right to me. That's the key question. And so, if somebody says, well, I feel this is the way things are for me, it almost closes down the conversation. Now, we're going to talk tonight about, as you will see from this passage, about men and women tonight and, and some areas about how men and women are to conduct themselves within the church. And we're, we're not going to pay a lot of attention to what we might feel is appropriate, but we are going to listen, I hope, to the Bible, what it says, try to work out what it means and what that should look like in practice. And one of the things that we say here, if you're visiting with us, Nice of you to pass through tonight. Uh, if if uh, you're visiting us, one of the things that we say here is that we can't do better than the Bible. You know, we, we, we really, no matter how we feel, no matter how we think, whenever we get to one of those bits that are a bit sticky for us, a bit painful for us, we, we've got to approach it saying, I know this comes to me from a loving God who has my absolute best at heart, and I cannot do better than your word, Lord. So, uh, that's the approach that we're going to take tonight. We might understand the Bible wrong at times, but when we understand it properly, uh, what, uh, we, when we understand properly what it means, then we must know that we cannot do better than it, no matter how out of step it might seem uh, with the culture around us. Let's just remind ourselves of what we're looking at in this letter. It's late on in Paul's life. He's come towards uh, the end of his ministry, and he's writing to Timothy, his, his young apprentice, and he's encouraging him in the task that he's left him to do in Ephesus. And there was a church there that had had the great privilege of having the great Apostle Paul teach there for nearly three years. And when he moved on, something that he had warned would happen did happen, and that is that the elders, or some of the elders, began to teach false doctrines. And Paul was concerned that the whole future of the church was at stake. And some had fallen away, and many more would shipwreck their faith where these things left unchallenged. And so, Timothy is sent to be the pastor in this very uh, challenging situation. And it's not only bad teaching that, Paul, that uh, Timothy has to challenge, it's bad practice because one thing is usually linked to the other. And in these verses, Paul tells Timothy to address some of the things that are happening in the churches that are not good. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we uh, saw that Paul was concerned that the church has sort of turned in on itself, begun to argue amongst itself, and had lost its missional concern. And there's still a concern for mission even in these verses because Paul's aware that some of the things that are happening in the church it might give it such a reputation within Ephesus that its witness would be harmed. Now, Paul states one of his purposes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. We're going to put it up on the screen. Um, Although I hope to come to you soon, um, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, I don't know if, if this happened in your family, but every now and again when our kids were growing up, we would have called a family conference and everybody would have come in and sat down and we'd have said, right, family, we need to address the bottleneck that there is in the bathroom in the morning or whatever it might be. How are we going to fix that? These are the rules then that we're going to instigate as part of this new procedure. And whenever we become Christians, you see, we, we we are adopted into a new family, the household of God, Paul calls it here. Beautiful. And Paul is laying down the rules for this new family. 
This is how you're to conduct yourself. This is how things go in this new family. It might be different from how it was in your old family. This is how it is in the new family. And that's pretty much the overarching concern of this chapter in the verses that we read tonight. How do we, how do we conduct ourselves within God's household? And you'll see in the verses uh, that we're looking at tonight, Paul has particular things to say about men and women. Now, even that in itself is a little out of step with our world. It's almost become impossible to say specific things to men and to women in our culture. But, but here, as we say these things, this is based on an understanding of men and women that runs all the way through the Scriptures. Now, we actually looked at this in October, 31st of October last year, as we looked at that part of that Being Human series and what the whole a, a, a picture of what the Bible says about what it means to be male and female is are concerned with. So, you, if that's still on the website. If, if you're interested in that, you might want to have a look at that or listen to it. And in summary, or at least in partial summary, it is to say that men and women are created by God and created entirely equally by God. They are together His image bearers, and equally His image bearers. Neither is more valuable, neither is superior. They are equal, but while they are equal, they are not interchangeable. They're created as a, a complementary pair, particularly clear in Genesis. And, and they, are, they are different in that complementarity. And, and that difference is not to be apologized for, but celebrated. And so our best, you see, is, is not in trying to conform to what the world says as those differences are, are minimized and, and uh, embarrassedly confessed, but our best is in conforming to what God says we are. And that teaching is all assumed here. And, and so that's why Paul can address these needs uh, separately. So three areas tonight that Paul's going to speak about. Praying, dressing, and teaching and ruling. Simple. Praying, first of all, verse 8. Look, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without angering or disputing. Now, in these things, Paul's addressing a particular circumstance in Ephesus, uh, but possibly, uh, maybe even in all of these things, particular problems that men and women can, by their natures, fall into more easily because we have different, uh, because we are, are different, we will find different ways in which we sin most easily. And if we were to apply that here, it looks like men may have an, a, a tendency to argumentativeness and competitiveness. Remember, one of the things that had happened with the false teachers was that they had introduced uh, controversies, and these had led to a general sense of disagreement and quarreling. And the men were, were coming to worship and leading in prayer and uh, involved in, in worship in one way or another, and, and their attitude was all wrong. One of the ways that Believers prayed was to lift their hands, to raise their hands to heaven as they prayed. And lifting up holy hands was a common biblical picture for purity. And so these men, it seems, were, were sinning in one way or another so that they didn't have holy hands. And, and their, their, their personal walk, perhaps, was 
not what it should have been, and their relationships were not what they should have been. They, they, they were full of anger and, and, and bitterness towards one another, because that's what happens when controversy comes into the midst of a church fellowship. And Paul says, no, I, I want you to pray, but, but I want you to pray in purity and, and by extension, in, in harmony. He's saying what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't we come to God sometimes and say, God, I know all this stuff in my life is a mess and, and quite frankly, Lord, I'm, I'm ignoring you and your, your call on that area of my life. Just you ignore it too, please, and answer my prayers. Isn't that remarkable that we would do that? But we do sometimes, and it seems that these men were doing this. And, and Paul says, look, men are to pray in holiness and unity. Of course, everyone was to pray in holiness and unity, but this was a particular problem for the men. Something we should underline here, Paul expects men to be at the forefront of the spiritual life of the church. Sometimes words that are translated men depends on the translation you have. Sometimes it refers to all people, men and women, and sometimes just to men. And here it is to men. In some churches, men fix things and women pray. I remember an elder once said to me, not in this church, an elder once said to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at, at fixing stuff and doing practical jobs around the place, but, but don't ask me to pray. An elder. And Paul is clear, men are to be active in the spiritual life of the church. So we're grateful today that at our prayer meeting, the, the breakdown of men and women were, was pretty much even. It's not the case all times. You know the hymn, take my life and let it be. Sometimes men sing a different version, don't they? Take my wife and let me be. Young men, as you dream of the future, as you dream of your future, whatever else the world tells you you should have, the Bible tells you that as a young man of God, you should have a heart for responsibility within the church of God to be at its forefront, to be at its coalface, to be living for God, not to allow that burden to be carried by others, but by you. Young men, maintain good relationships with each other and pray. Praying, dressing. The irony of me speaking about fashion has not gone over my head, particularly women's fashion. Verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for, the, for women who profess to worship God. Now, it seems that, that some of the women in the congregation in Ephesus were adopting lavish hairstyles. Archaeology and history shows us some of this, and particular styles of dress that were quite ironically, 
associate it on the one hand with extreme wealth and on the other hand with immorality, with actually the dress of, of prostitutes. And so the problem was not particularly that their hair was braided as such, but in that culture that it, it signified something particularly uh, risque. It signified that they were sort of morally loose and, and, and particularly independent from their husbands and so on. And Paul says, look, you just can't do that. It's not appropriate. John Stott's uh, wonderful in this passage, and, and uh, he points out the way that this is written indicates a positive desire for a, a woman to adorn themselves uh, as some of the, the more literal translations have. And he says this, a beautiful quote, when a woman adorns herself, she is seeking to enhance her beauty. So, Paul recognizes that women are beautiful and that they should increase and exhibit their beauty. There's no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance or conceal their beauty or become dowdy and frumpish, he says. And that's interesting. Sometimes women may feel guilty for taking any interest in their appearance as a, as a Christian woman, but that's not what's being said here. There are some qualifications, however. On the one hand, there's a, a modesty principle. There are styles of dress that point to immorality. I think that's probably true for both sexes. And, and Paul's saying, look, that's just not appropriate. And on the other hand, there's a, there's a character principle. There's another kind of beauty as well as physical beauty that's really worth paying attention to, he says. Now, remember that this whole section, Paul has a, a concern for the mission of the church. And these women were, were bringing the, the reputation of the church into question. They were doing things that were causing scandal. Those Christians, Ephesus would have said, oh, have you heard the latest? And you see, when people in the community thought of the church, that this was the stuff that jumped into their minds. Not character and godliness and good works, but edgy lifestyles. All of our lives are to speak of the gospel, isn't it? We are to adorn the gospel. Men and women, young and old, our lives are to back up the gospel, not detract from it. The world is, is watching, and character is to be our chief concern. Praying, dressing, teaching and ruling. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, you can imagine that these verses in particular have been much disputed. So, let me outline what it seems, I think, that Paul is saying. There are, there are two particular prohibitions here that uh, have been noted. One is the teaching prohibition, and the other is the authority, the, the ruling uh, uh, prohibition. That's why we've named this little point, teaching and ruling. So, let's think about those in turn. What's the teaching? Well, the word used for teaching here is, is used in the Bible to describe the, the careful and authoritative transmission of biblical truth. 
And, and you remember that this, this whole chapter is pretty much talking about what happens when the church gets together. It's talking about now. And, and so this seems to be a, a prohibition on the woman in Ephesus from preaching and teaching in the formal church gathering. So, so that's the, 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 the thing that's in mind. What about the authority issue? What was that? It looks like it's connected with the, the governing of the church, possibly with the teaching, but particularly with the governing of the church. So it's, it's not authority in general, like outside of the church, but in the church. Now, in our church, the way our church is structured, the way our leadership structures are formed is that these things sit within the eldership. We have teaching and ruling elders, ministers of teaching elder, elders, what we normally call Kirk Session, elders are, are, are ruling elders. And in other churches, it might be arranged slightly differently, but with us, it's, it's the eldership. So, what's Paul saying in this passage? That when the church gathers together, there were, there were preaching and teaching rules that he says are, are not open to women in this situation, and, and neither is the ruling rule. Now, the question we've got to wrestle with, of course, is, is this applicable today? Is it applicable in Ephesus? Is it applicable in Lurgan? Because some people will say it's not. Now, some of us might be quick to jump on that and say, oh, that's ridiculous. It's just ignoring the Bible. It's so, so liberal. But, but let's, before we do that too quickly, let's remember that there are all sorts of things that we read in the Bible that are specific to a particular time and, and in a sense, are, are culturally bound, and, and we are happy to leave the cultural practice behind and take the principle. So, for example, foot washing, John's gospel. Uh, John uh, tells of the time that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he actually says there, I have set you in an example that you should do as I have done for you. And yet we don't practice that today directly. Why? Well, because we recognize that Jesus was demonstrating a particular sacrificial service that met a need that was appropriate to that culture, and it worked itself out in a particular way. And we don't think that Jesus really meant us to, to wash one another's feet today. But the principle applies. He, he does mean us to, to give ourselves a sacrificial service to one another. Or here in this passage, we, we've just read of, of men lifting holy hands in prayer. And we don't take that as a literal command and say that that's the only way, the only posture in which you can pray that men have to adopt. We see other postures in the Bible. We recognize the principle that lies behind it that we've looked at tonight. So the task of moving from what was appropriate for Ephesus to what's appropriate for Lurgan is not just always as simple as we might think. So what do some people say? Well, some people do say that this was just for a particular circumstance and was a temporary prohibition. And there are a number of different reasons, too many perhaps for us to go into. They suggest, for example, that the women that Paul was referring to were not well educated and they were likely to get things wrong. But in a situation, they would say, where women are well educated, as in today, then that's a different matter. Or uh, they might say something like, the, the, the problem here was the culture in Ephesus was one where women were dominant. 
and they were assuming that that dominance applied to the church. And you'll notice, this is where translations can get a little bit different. You'll notice that that's behind the, I think it's the 2011 NIV, or the most modern NIV, where it says in verse 12, assume authority. It's the idea of a, a reaching for authority that wasn't really theirs. The old NIV, 1984, which is our pew Bibles, which you can't get anymore, is have authority, and the ESV says exercise authority. So you see the modern NIV has assumed a particular circumstance as it's gone about its translation. Or it might say, it might, people might say something like, well, Paul did restrict women's teaching here because he knew that that was all that the culture could tolerate, but he sowed the seeds of equal role for women in other places, knowing that eventually it would develop with time. It's a fairly common idea. So, so these and, and, and other sorts of arguments are, are promoted by what are called, and who call themselves sometimes, egalitarians. They, they, they say that the, the, all roles in the churches, all jobs in church are open to all people, to both sexes. Uh, as opposed to complementarians. I was suggesting that word at the beginning, that men and women are created with a, e equality, but, but a complementary function. Now, I don't think that that's how this is to be understood. And, and the key is what Paul says next. Look at verse 13. Look at this now carefully together. For Paul says, for Adam was formed, so he, he, he lays out the prohibitions, and then he says, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what, what's going on? Paul, it seems, see if you agree with this, Paul roots his practice in the church, not in what is happening in Ephesus or in the culture generally, he grounds his practice in the church and his instruction to the church in the way that God has made us. Adam was formed first, then Eve. He, he grounds it in Genesis. There's a difference in function in Adam and Eve that is reflected in the order of their creation. The order of their creation is important for Paul. And it's to be reflected, he thinks, he says, in the role that they have within the church. It was, so if we go back to some of the things that we've said about Adam and Eve before, it was Adam's job to lead his wife in the garden in the task of subduing and filling the earth, and her job was to be a helper alongside him in that. The roles was different, but there was an order to their roles, and it's to that difference that Paul appeals here. This is how the church is to be, he says, because God has made us different and has baked that difference into the very fabric of His creation. What went wrong at the fall, of course, was that this order was overturned. Remember, Adam was the team leader, we might say, Eve his helper, and they were to rule over creation. But at the fall, a serpent, part of creation, well, he becomes the boss, doesn't he? He, he takes the lead over them. Eve then leads Adam, while he, with responsibility to be her leader and protector, stands idly by. And even though she is the first to sin, becomes the transgressor, he bears the responsibility. Adam fell into sin. 
because the failure was ultimately his. And so it's that overturning of roles that lies behind verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, you see. And so because this is where Paul grounds his argument, it leads us to say, it leads me to say at least, that this is to be the pattern that is maintained in the church everywhere. It's how the Bible says the church is to be run. And we, we see things that perhaps lend support to that in the Scriptures, such as the fact that while Jesus had many close female friends and followers who served alongside the other disciples, the apostles He chose were all men. The leadership in the early church seems to have been male. And, and so, so, that leads me to conclude that the positions of, within our denomination of, of ministers and elders is for some men, suitably qualified men. We'll see that all being well next week. Now, of, of course, if you know anything about our denomination, Presbyterian Church in Ireland, you might know that this is not the position of our church. Presbyterian Church uh, ordains female elders and female ministers, has done for years. Many of those folk are dear friends of mine, they are great people who are leading people to Jesus Christ and blessing the church. But nevertheless, I do think that in the light of what's before us in this area, our denomination is out of step with what the Bible says on this issue. And this is the position, of course, of those that we tend to lean heavily on here in Hill Street. So, people like Keller and Carson and Piper and R.C. Sproul and Jen Wilkin and Nancy Guthrie and Kathleen Nielsen. Now, some of you will think differently on this, I am sure, and that's okay. You don't need to agree with this to be a member here, but I guess you should know that this is where the leadership is on this issue. And, and you do need to have a way of understanding this part of the Bible. I'd be really happy to talk with you about that. What about verse 15? Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Well, that, that's perhaps been an even harder verse to understand. I'm not really sure. I've, I've figured out what it means. I think it's probably one of two things. Either, as Paul is saying, these false teachers were sort of downplaying what we might call a traditional roles for women, and even in that culture, and they were encouraging women to, to assume authority and encouraging independence from their husbands, downplaying marriage altogether, as chapter 4, verse 3 says. But Paul is saying, actually, look, there's a blessing in family life. It's what childbearing stands for. And, and so that's where you're to work out your salvation. That's where your discipleship is, is, is located. It might be something like that. It might be something else. It, it, it might be that this is, should be translated as the childbirth. Women will be saved through the childbirth. So it might be having spoken about the fall in the previous verse, He's saying, look, everything went wrong at the fall, but, but women, and of course of all, us all, will be saved through the childbirth, through Jesus. Might be a reference to Him. Not 
really sure in that one, but it uh, doesn't affect Paul's argument in the verses above. So, praying, dressing, teaching, and ruling. God cares about how we conduct ourselves within the church. It's not our church, it is His. And so, He can say to us with authority, He can say to us, look, your, your relationships matter when you pray. Don't just think you can, you can roll up in the midst of relational chaos, thinking that that's okay, and carry on. How you dress matters too. Character matters. Who does what matters. It all matters because it's His church, and it's His household into which, by grace, He has brought us. Aren't we glad that He's done that? 